Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. I won't say welcome back today. I will say welcome to the first but not the last ever hidden history yet to happen happy hour. We'll explain what that means in a minute. How are you, my friend, Alex Dean? I'm good. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. And I'm on the last, just a reminder to our uh, sponsors, <laughs> I'm on the last of my blue run, which is relevant for today. It is. And we will get to that momentarily. And I, I won't even explain mine yet. But I don't blame you. Oh, for, you have a uh, cocktail shaker. I do. I, I went. I went high tone today. You have a sport coat on. I have a cocktail shaker. You do you, man. All you right. Say sport Let coat. Us... I say suit. All right. Uh, uh, well, thank God we can't see below the waist, so we don't know. Uh, but let me just introduce our guest briefly, and then we'll get around to what our cocktails are today. And it's a very exciting uh, episode we have today. First of uh, many of these, I, I hope. So Karen Slade is with us. Welcome, Karen. I toast with an hey, empty Karen. glass for now. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank, you Cheers. Thank you so much for coming. We're very excited. Your, your resume is far too long and impressive for me to read all of it. We will put it in the show notes. I will note, though, that uh, you have an MA from some some small regional school, Harvard in cultural anthropology. Alex also came from a small regional school. Uh, so he feels you on that. Yeah. Um, nice. You uh, live in Brooklyn and, and the Berkshires. So that Harvard degree must have paid off. And mm -hmm. uh, much like our intrepid executive producer, Ivan, you had a long career before you got yourself into the film business. You were 15 years mm -hmm. in branding and advertising, if I'm right, including in London. Yes, yep, absolutely. Worked with uh, a few brands that were global, Citibank being one of them, and had the good fortune to spend some time in your beautiful city. So loved London. Glad to hear it. At certain times of the year, anyway. Look, the reason that Karen is on is, as I alluded to in our title for today, we are going to make some history today. We don't just report the history. Sometimes we make the history. Now, obviously, as you'll find out, the events we're going to talk about happened half a century ago. But Karen is in the process of writing part of the history of those events. But up until now, she has also had some other forays into the film business. She had written and directed narrative shorts, including Dumbo. Maybe we could talk about that. I don't think it has to do with an elephant. Um, and uh, also The Failure, a science fiction thriller about a human-caused crop failure apocalypse. And yes, we're looking at you, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> we'll put all of Karen's credits in the show notes. We're going to explain to you in a second why Karen is here. But Karen, welcome. Tell us about your project. I'm so excited to share this with you. Um, we have been working hard for the past year on getting Kent State, a movie about the shootings in 1970 on Kent State University on May 4th. Um, we've been working hard on getting that into production. We're, we're very close. We're finishing our last financing and out to our last cast names actually today. So. Ah. Um, have director meetings coming up. So it's all very exciting. Are you ready to make some Hollywood news here on our podcast? You want to tell us who I am, you just signed? I am, 
Yeah, well, I can't I can't say, you know, those agents are very picky about when you can say and use people's names, but we do have um, some names I can use. We've got Clancy Brown um, from Shawshank Redemption. Sure. Um, he will be playing Governor Rhodes. An interesting story about Clancy Brown is that his father was in Ohio politics. He grew up in Ohio politics and his father ran against Governor Rhodes. Huh. And so he is happy to take that role on and um, and surprise his dad. His dad is still alive. So he's, Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Well, as the Klingons yeah. say, revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> Absolutely. And we've also got Zachary Gordon, who will be playing Jeff Miller, uh, the sort of iconic photograph, the young man who was on the ground that day with uh, Marianne Vecchio screaming over his body. And that was on the cover of the New York Times and um, was really the the way people got to understand what happened that day. So we're excited to have Zachary on board. He was the star of the Wimpy Kids series as a sure. younger man. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we're going to get into the real story of Kent State. We're going to get into the project, but we got to talk about our booze first. So I asked you, I advised you that on this show, we try to drink uh, what our characters might have been drinking. So I asked you, what would your main characters be drinking? And you said? I said, well, the main character who is who witnessed the events as a 17-year-old and is now all grown up and owns a hedge fund, he's a bourbon <laughs> man. And so, and my understanding, that's perfect for this show, sponsored by Fabulous Fine Bourbon. Yes, and uh, Alex will be playing that role with his Blue Run Bourbon. I'm our having sponsor. some Blue Run right now. Yeah, he Excellent. wants to. He Thank wants you. it to be clear to our sponsors that the bottle's almost empty and that it can't be exported to yeah, London. Yeah, but we're working it, on it. it, it well, for uh, many listeners on radio, uh, I, uh, they can't see it. But for those watching us on YouTube and so forth. This bottle is perilously close to done. Perilously close. Well, and I think if Blue Red is interested, we would love to have a sponsorship for a couple scenes in our film as well. We there you go. Crossover. Well, I know yeah. that they I know that they watch regularly, and I will only take a 15% cut of uh of securing that that sponsorship for you. Now, your other character, main character, drinks what? So President White, who was the president of Kent State University at the time, he is a gin martini man and enjoyed back in the day, you know, sort of a madman type time period, a few, uh, you know, three martini lunches. And uh, so that was his drink of choice. And then, of course, the students based there in Ohio in the town of Kent we're thinking they had regional beers as well as national beers, Budweiser, Stroa. There's um, Genesee. I think one of your team brought up the Little King's uh, Cream Ale. The, the King Cream Ale, which um, has also been on our short list. So I was pleased that you knew about it as well. You're the the inside knowledge of Ohio. Well, yes, I grew up 70 miles from Kent State. I was a wee lad at the time, but I do know, I do remember enough to know that I am not committed enough to this podcast to drink Stroh's beer. And also, I don't think it's available anymore, but I will take on the role of your president because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the three martini lunch never went out of style. Nope. And uh, one of the disadvantages, uh, Karen, of being me instead of Alex is Alex gets to record these things at 10 at night, whereas I have to record them in the middle of the day. So this literally will be a three martini lunch for me. Excellent. 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 And for me, I am drinking what 
the other lead character of the contemporary time period would drink. So the uh, little sister of the hedge fund manager, she would be drinking perhaps some organic white wine, little vino verde spritz. And mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm enjoying. Here's to Kristen. Cheers yeah. to that. And um, we talked about vino verde in our last uh, episode. Yes. Uh, not least because we both love it. And it's an acquired taste, of course. But um, as are we. Uh, it, it, well, amen, but there's still thousands of listeners. So, you know, acquired taste, but uh, astute and uh, wise taste. Easy to um, acquire. Easy to acquire. Um, for me, Vino Verde, once you like it, you know you will always like it. And mm -hmm. uh, you'll find it uh, in some very discerning places here in London. Um, I drank uh, many bottles of Vino Verde in Portugal, of course. Um, which is where I um, acquired it. There are some people who find it, you know, too sour. They, they, it, it's so, uh, it's picked so young, it's so green uh, that they don't like it. But um, I'm very glad to find another aficionado. Yes. Well, yeah, a little, a little, a little sour fits my taste bud profile. I'm not such a sweet one. Amen. <laughs> Fair. Us too. Amen. Well, look. Look, uh, I mentioned I was uh, seven to eight years old uh, at the time of the Kent State shooting in 1970. Alex was a decade away from being a zygote, so he will have even less uh, memory of this than I do. I mean, his people, of course, remember the OG uh, of Kent State, the Boston Massacre, as do mm -hmm. we. Um, but why don't you tell us, Karen, about the actual event for those of us uh, who don't know it, and then let's talk about your project and why you want to do the project. Sure. Excellent. So the the Friday before uh, May 4th, President Nixon had announced that we were going to be invading Cambodia. Uh, previous to that, a week previous to that, he had for the first time announced that 150,000 troops would be coming home from Vietnam. And again, this is a draft. This is all of your friends are you know, scared about their draft card or they're skipping out of town, um, constantly uh, on edge, who's going, who's staying, who's going to remain alive and who isn't. So there was such a relief by all the students across the country mm -hmm. that finally we're, going, we're withdrawing, we're coming home, there was celebrations and then boom, Come Thursday night, Friday morning, it's leaked that we're actually invading Gam Cambodia and no one is coming home. Mm. The students started to protest on that Friday. And what happened at Penn State is there was a lot of controversy about the Reserve Officers Training Corps program, which offered kids scholarships in order to go into the Reserve Officers Training Corps so they could get a free, free uh, education. But then on the other hand, they had to go serve in Vietnam. And so there were many students who were against the ROTC on campus because campus should be about education and not about, you know, what they thought was a military education, not a, you know, actual liberal arts type education. So there was a lot of protest against the ROTC's presence. So Friday night, as a way to respond to the Cambodia announcement, some of the students at Kent State burned down the ROTC building. And um, that is considered a federal building. And as a response, Governor Rhodes had an excuse to 
uh, let the National Guard roll in, which, you know, to protect federal uh, federal properties. So the National Guard started to roll into campus on Friday night and um, a martial law was called and all the students had to stay on campus and not leave campus. So we have, you know, 30,000 students on campus plus the National Guard. So you can imagine the, the incredible tension that happened over the weekend. So, uh, you know, by Saturday night, there were other protests. Um, Sunday, they, the students were completely frustrated. They were trying to make plans. Um, the president of the university actually had been out of town at a conference that weekend. Probably sipping a martini somewhere. Probably sipping a martini somewhere, playing some golf. Yeah. And then he flies back in using the university plane and he sees that his entire campus is invaded by National Guardsmen. Everybody was a little bit afraid to tell him. So he comes in and he's found that he's lost control of the university. A man named General Del Corso is in charge. Karen, let me, and, sorry, sorry, let me just interrupt you here. Because sure. one of the things that's a brand of our show is not only telling obscure stories from history, but also finding those little obscure nuggets of well-known stories that perhaps people didn't know. And I have to say, I didn't know, even though I grew up 70 miles from there, what I think you just said, and I want to clarify, are you saying that the president of Kent State University did not know the National Guard were on his campus until his plane landed? Well, as his plane was coming in, he could see them. But that's what we, I'm saying. That's the first time he but, knew. So what I did to, to find out more details about this story, because at the time that I was starting down this path, there really weren't many books or documentaries yet. Right. And now there are a few more because we've now experienced the 50 year anniversary a couple of years ago. Um, in talking to some of the uh, people that were professors or in the administration, that is the report that I've received that he didn't know. He was for sure gone. We do know that, that is you know, in the history. Um, what he knew and didn't know, uh, he knew that he was getting calls from the mayor, that there was tensions, um, and then he lands and uh, flies in and sees it, you know, dramatically invaded. That's so, amazing. and the students are, you know, trying to appeal to him, but he had lost, you know, any authority over what was happening on campus. And it was bad. I mean, kids were out at night and, you know, the National Guardsmen were taunting them. There was a young woman who was running away from a National Guardsman and actually was bayoneted in the leg mm -hmm. as she was being pulled in through a window. I mean, it was, they were giving chase. They were, they were really, you know, there was a lot of tension between the townies that were the National Guards and these kids who were able to go to school and have, you know, have a, a university life. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I should mention we we on a prior episode, which we'll put in the show notes, we talked about the real danger to not only human life, but also democracy and freedom of taking a military trained force. And I realize there's maybe some dispute or maybe it's not very ambiguous how well trained this military force was, but any military force, no matter how well trained and putting them in charge of domestic law enforcement because they are not trained to handle curfews. They're trained to kill people. And so yes. this is this is a very dangerous thing. And thank God it rarely happens in the United States. Yeah, yeah it was really unfortunate. So, of course, by the time Monday happened, um, the right to protest had been taken away from the students. And of course, they thought that that was ridiculous and organized a 12 noon protest. And that's when... Um, the tragedy of 
13 seconds of bullets started to fly and hit 13 students and one of them was paralyzed, four of them were uh, killed and the rest of them survived. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a dark really day. A very dark day in in America. I I also find it, you know, this is this is a little campus in the middle of nowhere in the yeah. middle of Ohio. This this did not happen at Stanford, Yale, Columbia. This happened at a place where it possibly could happen because of the power of the of the governor. He was running for Senate. The Senate primaries were the very next day, and he wanted to get on camera. I think he wanted to get on the news that he was a Nixon man and he was going to quiet down these students. Well, there's another piece to that, too. And I, I don't actually have any memories of it myself, but my brother, who was a junior in high school when this happened, has very vivid memories, including of a friend from our high school who went there and was on the campus during the protest. But wow. he also said, and I thought this was a pretty salient point, and if he's listening, I rarely ever grant that he's raised a salient point, that <laughs> Kent State University was not Berkeley. It wasn't Wisconsin. It wasn't right. Boulder. It was a small, I don't know that it, you'd say it was conservative, but it was not a hotbed of radicalism at the time. Correct. It was one of the, you know, the jewels in the crown of Ohio education. I mean, it was a state university, well-funded, well-attended. Uh, Jeff Miller, for example, had just transferred from Ohio, I mean, from Chicago to come to Ohio and go to Kent State. So there was some attraction to coming down there. Um, you know, of course, then they've had some, you know, reputation issues since then, but, yeah. uh, which of course they're trying to get over, but this didn't happen at a Berkeley or a you know Chicago or uh, Columbia. So, so I have uh, I have spent some very happy hours at Alex's recommendation at the Museum of London, which uh, is an amazing museum. It used to be right across from Alex's office, as I recall, and it basically traces right. the history of the city of London from pre-Roman times. You're saying why is this relevant? It's relevant because they do have a whole section on kind of the 60s and the music and the psychedelic movement. I don't remember much of anything about the protest movement there. Do you know, Alex, what the environment was like in, in, in London in the early 70s? I know you weren't alive, but. Yeah, I, it mirrored the United States in that it was a big protest uh, movement. Of course, we did not have troops committed in Vietnam, much to the chagrin of the Nixon White House, right. uh, who ended the Kennedy White House. Uh, who both said, you know, you could lend us one regiment, you could lend us the Black Watch, uh, just to yeah, make a point. And uh, we steadfastly refused, uh, most notably under Harold Wilson, who was a Labour Prime Minister, uh, to commit troops um, at the time. But uh, therefore, if we didn't have troops, it was easier to to make the protest. And um, and they full-throatedly did. Uh, but the, the, in the swinging 60s and the early 70s, people have, people have this idea that uh, decades are uh, guillotined off at New Year's Eve, and it that's not how it works. No, it's uh, the late 1960s, the early 1970s blended one into another. The politics was much the same, and in the United Kingdom, there was a on, on the one hand very strong, kind of tr uh, trendy, um, dropout, peacenik uh, movement, and, and the swinging 60s were very strong in the UK, and on the other hand, there was a uh, establishment pushback and uh, resentment of of all of that, uh, which is too uh, too obvious to be um, uh, to be stressed. 
but uh, it, what you're talking about, and this is this always interests me, that was the time in which our politics most closely aped yours. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are diversions that have happened since uh, joining the European Union, which happened shortly after that, uh, leaving the European Union, which happened only relatively recently in historical terms. Uh, but in that time, as Britain was uh, divesting itself um, with indecent haste of empire and so forth, and was at a low point, that was when Britain was most closely following American politics, pretty much to the day uh, when Kent State was happening. Mm, okay, yeah, it's good context. So, Karen, what interested you personally as a storyteller about this story, and how did you decide this was the next project for you? That's a great question. As a screenwriter, there's always a desire to do something, you know, uh, provocative, not seen before, but but existing and and sort of a, a back burner knowledge of it you know there's you know what they call a um you know sort of a brand knowledge of of some event um and so i was looking for something that um that i could you know really sink my teeth into i had written some thrillers i had written um a family film uh you know i had i had attempted a romantic comedy but being that i'm not so sweet that didn't work so well so <laughs> um and then so I was watching the news and they were there was discussion about why we were ever in Iraq. And the thought occurred to me that all the reasons why we were really in Iraq were swept under the rug. And so the concept of, well, wait, what's what else has been swept under the rug? What, you know, are there any other stories? And of course, there's a lot of them. And Kent State came to mind. So I um, I wasn't even around in 1970. I I was just like a wee babe in arms, um, but I I just don't rub it in. You know, I I got that I got a bee in my bonnet, and I thought, okay, well that is interesting. And I was so surprised that nobody else was doing a film. Yeah. yeah. So right. in ni- <laughs> in 1980, there was a sort of after school docudrama that won the Emmy. So there was a TV series by the Osmond Studios, interesting enough, in Utah. Mm. Um, So they sort of recreated what happened. Um, And I, so I knew I didn't want to just do a docudrama. I wanted to get at bigger themes and bigger ideas. My first draft of the script was uh, just what happened in 1970. And then I wanted, I realized I, I needed it to be bigger. I needed us to be able to look at history through this story, not just see the you know the plot twist of this happened then that happened but why do these things happen how do we deal with history mm-hmm. you know history is not something that just begins and ends you know with within this certain period of time it lives on in all of us and what is the experience of that what was the experience of that with Kent State and how can we get at these bigger questions um, you know right now there's so many different historical movements you know being looked at whether it's from an African-American point of view, a woman's point of view, the trans community. I mean, there's so many different uh, ways that we need to look at history uh, in order to understand how it's impacting all of us now. Can I ask well, you a che- question? Cheers to that. Friend? Cheers. To, first of all, cheers to that. Amen. Yes. And my, my question is, uh, I think I had some very nice bourbon. My question is, um, do you base the film around a real life uh, character as the central person or is it an amalgam of different things that happen to people? The main character 
in fact, I had him in mind the very the second that I thought of Kent State, I thought of the paper boy and how here's somebody who brings news and information to people. Um, and he is a teenager. He secretly wants to go to Kent State University. And through him, we get to know um, all of the players. So he delivers the paper to the university president. He starts to get to know the kids in the student movement. Um, and so through his point of view, we we get to understand the people who were real. So the characters that were real, I have done so much research trying to get as many verbatims, what they actually did, what they actually said, um, painstaking research to understand how to best represent them and honor their lives. I mentioned my brother, my older brother, Clark. Uh, he actually was the editor of his school paper in our small little town of Fremont, Ohio. Nice. And in August of 1970, so four, three and a half months later, mm -hmm. he attended a journal, a student journalism camp at Kent State. Wow. And at the time, the governor, I believe it was a Pennsylvania, we'll look it up, but there was a commission, like a 9-11 style commission that was looking at all the events. And I, there was a governor who was running it. And that person was in on campus doing his investigation. My brother gets a picture of him on campus doing the investigation. And that photo was the page one photo of the newspaper that was the result of the journalism camp that he was attending. And uh, I've tasked him to find it. And if he finds it, we'll get it to you and we'll get it uh, in the show notes. The other thing he said to me, just as complete coincidence, I mean, a week ago, I didn't even know you were making this film, but just talking to my brother, these things happened. Also on campus at the time was a, a, a minor novelist you may have heard of called James A. Michener. And yep. Michener was researching what would become his book about Kent State. Yep. And yep. he came and spoke to my brother's journalism workshop at Kent State at the time. James Michener's book was one of the only books that had actually been published. Yeah. Uh, about this. I And again, so strange. Why hasn't this important story gotten more attention? And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make it into a film. Right. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a little um, thing about Michina. So um, as you know, Karen, I've written a couple of uh, books about history, how absurd uh, getting book deals off of uh, Twitter. There you go, Brian's show. For those watching on video, Brian's showing the uh, the, the OG books, but, and volume two. Yeah. So if there is a volume three, this will appear in it. But um, in the UK in 1931, this uh, young American goes to his bank in Scotland and uh, he's run out of money. And this is not a start to a joke, by the way. It's true. <laughs> uh, and um, he's run out of money and he's going to cash in his traveler's checks and have a little holiday in Europe and go home. And he presents them at the counter and the cashier pauses for a moment and says, would you mind coming back on Monday? Uh, it would be a great convenience for both of us. It's a quite a singular way of speaking. It's a very particular <laughs> turn of phrase. And no doubt mentally cursing the inefficient British banking system, the American concerned, uh, nevertheless, obediently turns on his heel and leaves the bank. And the next day, uh, faith in the markets and Britain's ability to maintain the financial ship of state collapsed because there was a mutiny in their North Atlantic fleet at the Invergordon in a dispute over uh, naval pay. And we came off the gold standard. 
and therefore sterling promptly uh, and significantly devalued. And that American's traveler's checks leapt in value. And suddenly he came back to the bank on Monday and he found he had enough money to finish his university degree at St. Andrews. And that was the young James Michener. Wow. Had he not had that additional time in his formative years, I think his writing years, including what you're talking about now, his whole life would have been completely different. We very rarely get to tell stories about good bankers, right? So this is, <laughs> this is a story about yeah, a, a, good. a good banker. I think That's it's, amazing. Yeah, it's, but it's also a good story about Michener because had he been grumpy and said, you know, up yours, give me my mm -hmm. money, the clerk would have said, all right, then here's your, you know, three fifths of what you would get on Monday and he'd have paid amazing. him out. Yeah, and here's well, your sterling. That would have been that. So uh, I, I had, I had not heard Alex tell that story before. I can't wait for volume three for lots of reasons, including that. But I, I am a very significant aficionado of James Mitchner. I think I've read most of everything he's written. He was a lecturer at the Iowa Writers Workshop when I was there uh, in the '80s. And one thing you do run into in a lot of his novels are. Are, are moments of serendipity that change everything for his characters. And I wonder if that uh, was inspired by his, his time in, uh, in London. Wait, so he wasn't, so he wasn't in London. He was in Scotland. Oh, sorry, uh, Scotland. But I mean, this, is, this event. Yeah. Yeah. Far more, far more financially aware of our friends in Scotland. They really <laughs> keep their purse strings drawn tight. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. So, all right. So you decide that this, has percolated up to the top of your creative coffee pot mm -hmm. to torture the metaphor. And what's the first thing you do? Do you, do you sit down and research like, like Mitchner would do Mitchner would have spent 10 years researching before right. he put a pen down for this. And that is one flaw with Mitchner is once he knows something, he has to tell you. So his books are a thousand pages long, but what did you do next? Once you decided you wanted to do this? I got all the books I could just to sort of see what, the point of view was it felt like again there was a lot of telling the minutiae of the plot of that weekend but again not getting at well why in the world could this have happened mm -hmm. how did the national guard get on campus with live bullets and um so and were they I, never supposed to be so did, can you tell us a little more about that that uh, rubber there, bullet there, live bullet point there is civilian bullets, which, uh, you know, the thing called civilian bullets and that they are rubber bullets. And then there are regular bullets and and regular bullets should never be used in a civilian situation. Right. Um, but they were used, obviously. And so the first thing I did was, um, well, this is back when I was also still in advertising. And one of my clients was Procter & Gamble and they were in Ohio. So I would have to fly there constantly for client meetings before the day of, of Zoom. This is back when we all had lots of frequent flyer miles. Yeah. And I would stay an yeah. extra day, make the five hour trek from since I'd try to go on a Wednesday or a Thursday and then stay in, go to Kent Friday and Saturday and drive up there and I interviewed again, as many people as I could find, the professors, um, the Dean of Students, the old student body president, you know, just tr trying to find out all the different perspectives on, on what happened, um, 
whether it was personal or what they think happened and why the university got involved in this type of thing. Um, and that is when I started to commit the actual, you know, get up, dust off the final draft and, and start in on the script. I always know my first and last scenes when I start writing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I knew those. And then I just had a lot, a lot of fill in between those two. Final so, draft for our, our non-writers uh, being the software used to write uh, screenplays and, and scripts and such. I wouldn't want them to think you started with your actual final draft. That final draft, right. Yeah. No, I did not. I did not. It took a few drafts to get there. And uh, and I'm happy that I had the time to let let the let it deepen like a good wine or a good bourbon. I, I had the, the chance to let it sit there and, and speak its own mind of what it needed to be. So, so yeah, one, of the, one of the funny things about your situation is that everyone knows a few things about Kent State, right? You know mm -hmm. a lot of things, uh, but everyone knows two or three things. And mm -hmm. I, I say this as a Brit, not in your country, and even I have, I have some awareness of this. I think one of the things that um, has percolated to me is that the guys on the other side of this, the young guardsmen um, asked mm -hmm. to go out, you know, police the streets, uh, were by no means well-trained, were by no means professionals, were by no mm -hmm. means really equipped for the situation they confronted themselves with. And I, I wondered if you would please say a few things about that. And they were also tired, there was a trucker's strike uh, just a few days before, and they were, this same unit was basically 24-7 for three days in a row, uh, managing a very large trucker strike that was absolutely shutting down food distribution to parts right. of Ohio. And so they came right off of that. I think they got about a four-hour rest one morning and then they were called into uh, the town of Kent and called over and they were they were patrolling Kent until that fire happened and then they just rolled right on up to and Kent. These are young guys, right? These are ROTC young guy. I'm not being sexist. They are all guys. This well, is these the... were the National Guard. So the ROTC was a program on campus to train officers. The National Guardsmen were were the, you know, the townspeople of Akron and Kent. Right. So and yeah, so just just to be clear for anybody that's not familiar with this, the in the in the U.S. military and I, I think Allied militaries as well, you have the uniform services: the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, Space Force. I guess now you have Cyber Force. You have also reserve units of the main service branches, which are so-called weekend warriors. A lot of them were ex-military, but not all. Uh, ex-uniform full-time military but not all and they get two weeks of training a year and then they go just serve at a regular military unit uh, for weekends <clears throat> national guard is a little different than that because everything i've mentioned so far answers to the president of the united states the commander-in-chief period end of story the national guard are also as i understand it uh answer to the department of defense but they also answer to the governor's of their state. Mm -hmm. So this was a big kind of mini scandal during Hurricane Katrina here, because governors yep. have some ability to so-called call out the National Guard. And it's very unclear, sorry to be boring, but it's very unclear under our Constitution where the line is between when they answer to the president and when they answer to the governor. So these were not necessarily people who had ever served in the full-blown, you know, fully trained U.S. military. I'm sure some were and some weren't. But 
question I have, Karen, is have you, were you able to get any first person accounts of the students, of the protesters, but also of these National Guardsmen, either writings or oral histories or interviews? There were, there are a few writings and oral histories. Um, again, the National Guard at the time was used as a way to avoid going to Vietnam. Right. So those that, that also, in, yes. You know, those that were in the National Guard probably were the butcher, the baker, the policeman's kid. You know, these were kids who had some sort of status or strings had been pulled for them to be in that unit versus shipped off to overseas. Right. So um, I think that even visiting the town of Kent, when I, you know, have been going back and forth now for a half a dozen years, there still is a bit of a tension between the university and the surrounding uh, community and the people at the university still talk about that. So in the UK, the we, we call that town and gown. Yes. Yeah. So like yeah. the townies versus the students and that still exists very much so to this day. Um, I was at a May 4th commemoration. They have one every year and they invite different people to speak at them. And um, just a few years ago, while we were there, there was a, a, a sheet that unfurled from a truck that said hippies go home. And so it was a truck that was driving by, you know, this field where this event had happened. So Did the again, truck also include a time machine, do you know, or? <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's amazing. It feels like things haven't really changed much. And speaking of that, I was, so one of the things that we considered was, well, should we shoot at Kent? Should we shoot at Kent State University? Right. We shoot in that town. And uh, we got in touch with the university. I was put in touch with various people from their media PR person to uh, somebody else in the administration of the president's office. And we could never really get an answer. And and this is pre-COVID. We were, we were pretty much ready to go pre-COVID. Mm, yeah. um, and we couldn't get an answer. And it was so frustrating. And I thought, okay, well, I'll call the town offices and maybe they'll want the jobs and the film tourism that will happen afterwards. And you know, really come to, you know, talk about this event. So I call the mayor's office and somebody answers the phone and I said, hi, I'm Karen. I'm making this film about Kent State, about the shootings in 1970. And he said, oh, well, you know, a lot of us are still really upset about our broken windows that night. Hmm. Oh, I, what a perspective. I, yeah. And I at least had the presence of mind. Rather, I mean, my jaw was on rather the floor. Rather say, what about the guys who died? And yeah. I said, well, what if, I hope the same concern is, you know, given to the four students, the four kids who are dead. And then he stopped and he said, well, yeah, maybe this could be a time of reconciliation. And I thought, you know, I'm not there to reconcile the town. I, I need to yeah. protect my cast and crew. I mean, the... The other thing that I realized, you know, the National Guardsmen, they're all still there and it's the students that go to school and leave. Right. And so, and then, so back to your original question, I did listen to some accounts of National Guardsmen. Uh, they haven't exactly been interviewed. Uh, it's hard to find information. Evidently, there was one who had left a tape of his con like confession, confession under a mattress. Hmm. Uh, that he had, quote, taken a bead at Jeff Miller. Um, you know, that was, you know, taking a shot. And Jeff Miller was shot in the mouth. 
and he was the student that was 400 feet away versus 800 feet away from the National Guard. I mean, these students were far away. They were not right up there, you know, right. next to them in a in a fighting stance. So, so I did hear some limited information uh, from the National Guard side. I do want to say, you know, these are all kids. These right. are 19-year-olds. On so, both sides. Yeah, both sides. These are kids. And they're all trying to express themselves. One's expressing themselves in one way. One is expressing themselves in another way. Tragedy happened between the mix of these two groups. And I do think that tragedy was allowed to happen because of the adults involved in the situation, the General Del Corso and Governor Rhodes. Um, the other thing that I think is a little fact that is very odd to me is there were 13 news crews and cameras there that morning on May 4th. Um, there was 13 news crews. There were 13 seconds of bullets firing. Not one of them, not one of them turned a camera and got any of it on footage. I think that what happened unlikely, was- footage, it? Yeah, well, the footage disappeared. And that's, I don't go into the, you know, what happened afterwards and the, the you know, cover up of what happened. But right. I think is, I'm hoping that these questions are brought up and um, and investigated by a documentary filmmaker. I wanted to give you- uh... Uh, we're, we're coming we're coming up on an hour now so i uh, just wanted to give you one uh, because brian was asking about a historical context and what i thought about kent state in the history of uh the anglosphere not least because of course your law grew out of ours and uh, and so forth so we had a um a riot act and um that's what i thought about when i was thinking about kent state now um in the early 1700s, 1714, 1715, uh, we passed our riot act. So it plainly had an influence on American law, given how long ago uh, that was. And um, in the Horse Guards Museum, just uh, just off Whitehall in, um, in London, which I've been to, there's this amazing little uh, exhibit. And it's the uh, aid memoir, the, a little bit of paper forced down into the holster of um, a, a, a marine captain, dragoon captain, a cavalryman. Um, the point uh, being that it, it it said what he had to read the riot act, which is an expression in my country as it yeah, is, I think, too, in, in, in yours. And uh, and the riot act in total before you could unleash hell uh, was his majesty, the king, commands all of you to disperse immediately and to go quietly to your homes or to your lawful business upon pain of being charged with an offense prisonable, punishable uh, by imprisonment for five years. God save the king. Now, the what the interesting thing about it when I looked at this exhibit in the Horse Guards Museum is, is that it had by the, this is like a, a piece of paper smaller than you you have in your wallet. It was crammed down into a a, a pistol butt uh, holster, and it is that it had "Do not submit" by "God Save the King," because somebody brought a case. Uh, if not for you know unlawful loss of life, it was for unlawful enforcement of the rules because at the end of reading the riot act before the cavalry got going 
somebody didn't say god save the king and therefore their cavalry charge was ruled unlawful i find it fascinating if you think about the three the three stages one the gun comes out of the holster and therefore you because this is it dictates the the process necessarily this bit of paper is is in the holster so you can't get it before you get the gun out everyone can see the gun two you read it three unleash hell uh but do not omit god save the king uh before um reading the riot act but uh, before reading the riot act is is finished and i um i thought of that well predating obviously kent state i mm. thought of that tradition because brian and i've discussed many times on the podcast the importance of the law being simple clear and accessible to the people upon whom it's enforced now i also think the state shouldn't have this kind of power but putting that point to one side at least it's clear to everyone concerned um what the law is and that is a claret my point is this is a law passed either 1714 or 1715 there's some debate in my country and in in uh, the horse guards museum that's got to have been in the Napoleonic era, somewhere between 1805 and 1815, that this little bit of paper was pushed down to this guy's holster. It's a good near, nigh on 150 years before what happened at Kent State. And there was no clarity when those guys opened fire. And there was yeah. no clarity on either yeah. side of what was happening. Yeah, there was no warning. <clears throat> uh, there, there has been controversy whether or not they were told to fire, but they did all turn, kneel, and fire in sync. Right. And so it didn't really appear. There has been... That's not an accident, is it? Yeah, there's been um, a recording of somebody shouting the word fire that uh, was uncovered by Alan Canfora, who unfortunately is no longer with us. He was one of the students who was shot through the wrist and he lived. And so that is... Um, that is still part of the controversy. What, as far as impacting the law, the Supreme, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court and the state of Ohio was trying to say that because they were acting on official business that they could do what they needed to do. And the Supreme Court said, no, that that was not the case. So after they, seven didn't have, they, did, they didn't have immunity, you're saying. They, they could be prosecuted even though they were following orders. I, I, I think Correct. that's what you're saying. I don't know the case. But, yeah. but then it was settled out of court. And so we don't know exactly what happened. We do know that the this, this families got collectively, um, I believe, $56,000. And then Dean Kahlo, who was paralyzed and still alive, um, got a, an additional sum from that. So right. it took seven years to get some sort of ruling on it. Well, the, in the in the United Kingdom, there's the, the one parallel that is topical enough in our lifetimes is the enforcement of uh, the attempts to enforce at least uh, the rule of law in Northern Ireland. And um, there are soldiers who served in Northern Ireland who have been, and whatever one thinks of the way they behaved in, as individuals, hung out to dry by systems that asked them to go and serve. These are yeah. young guys quite often yeah, in, their, in their teens and 20s and have pulled these guys now from the 1970s, 
pulled these guys in, into individual trials after having been investigated, I'm not kidding, seven, eight, nine times over the course of their lives. And at some point, it seems to me, and I'm a good libertarian, and I believe in individual responsibility. At some point, it seems to me, the state has to hold its hands up and say, we bear responsibility, not the individual. And not least because if there's somebody to be compensated on the other end, it's not going to be this retired squaddy, this this retired right. corporal uh, who has to sell his house to make good on the individual's concern. It's the state's fault. Now, mm -hmm. that, that seems to me to be an acute comparison with what happened in Kent State, even if by dint of protection in, under law, uh, the individuals concerned um, in that example have not been um, drawn out in, in in the public space in the way they have in my country. Well, a very, very similar thing happened, not only in my lifetime, but in my government service time uh, in the United States, which is the CIA officers who were involved in the, depending on your point of view, enhanced interrogation or torture program, were mm -hmm. investigated multiple times by the career prosecutors at the Justice right. Department, right. and charging decisions were made that they they would not be charged. New administration comes in. These people had already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on lawyers and had their career destroyed. And the new administration says, mm, hold on, sorry, just kidding. We're going to investigate you again. So let me tell you my my view on that because and, and it can be as clear as it can because it's a country that isn't my own. So my my third party view can be um, I, I I hope um, direct. Those people conducted themselves on the facts that are in the public sphere despicably, but the notion that they were off on a frolic of their own and did that by dint of their own view is for the birds it was plainly coordinated by those who were commanding them at the time so mm. individuals the idea that you should reduce these it's not even deputy heads will roll the idea you should reduce responsibility to the private concerned walking the line rather than the people that drew where the line was for me that is the ultimate abrogation of the responsibility of the state and in that example, it's plainly to do with the state's uh, responsibility. And, well, and I, 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 I say that as someone who's not American. I agree with part two. I won't, I won't necessarily agree with your despicable comment. But what I will say is that it is now absolutely clear that for the most part, and there were a few people that, that violated their orders and were sent to prison and they should have been. But for the most part, those people were operating under very specific legal opinions of the United States Department of Justice. And you can potentially castigate, disbar, prosecute the Department of Justice lawyers if, if you see fit. But the people who were following lawful orders according to a process that was in place at the time with the Justice Department, I think is right. I think so is the, a problem. So the difference between the, what we're talking about now and Karen's movie, which I'm greatly looking forward to seeing. Yes. It, it is that um, the, the men, and they were all men, the men involved at Kent State were involved in a series of moments of decisions with which they were frankly not equipped uh, uh, to decide. Yeah. Building a human pyramid of naked prisoners who've been in your command for some months or even years, that is different to this. Uh, there, in Kent State, there were victims on both sides. 
All right. Well, I can see that we have to have an entire episode about this, but I have to correct the record as a CIA officer. You're talking about Abu Ghraib. Yep. I'm talking about the enhanced interrogation program, two entirely different things conducted by entirely different people. I could not more strongly agree with your views on Abu Ghraib, but the other is a much more nuanced conversation, but we don't need to take Karen's time on that. I, I do, you know, we're running long. This is so fascinating. We've gone forever. I want to ask you a couple more quick questions, but I do have to add just one personal anecdote here to illustrate a point that I think Alex and I make frequently and is perfectly illustrated by your take on Kent State. And that is when the adults in charge put forces in near proximity to each other and in opposition to each other in a way that cannot be controlled. Chaos is highly likely to happen. And my point is we are right there right now with Ukraine and Russia and NATO and the United States. Mm -hmm. No, everybody on our side, in my opinion, has and can make very reasonable decisions. But when you put two opposing forces so close to each other, accidents happen. And here's an example. We've talked about this a little bit before on the on the program, uh, Karen, but you probably don't know this. My father was an Episcopal minister and he was mm -hmm. an Episcopal minister in the Huff area during the riots in the 60s in Cleveland, where I was the only white kid in the church. And there was a, a thing that happened that I always kind of assumed might have been apocryphal, but I checked with my older brother who has a personal memory of it, and it happened exactly the way I'm going to tell it. Mid-60s, father's in the Huff area, only white minister around. There's a protest at a school playground, which is going to be bulldozed. Sounds like the Joni Mitchell song, but it predated the Joni Mitchell song. Uh, my father and a bunch of other local ministers had arranged to go and literally stand in front of the bulldozers to prevent the destruction of this property. And again, I thought this might have been apocryphal, but I've now checked with my brother. My dad gets sick on the day. He can't go. One of his fellow ministers lays down in front of the bulldozer and is run over and killed. And... Yeah. Oh. My dad suffered extreme survivor's guilt about this. And likewise, the driver so, so of the bulldozer's oh life was God. destroyed because it was an accident. Right. But it happened because these forces were put next to each other. Right. How was it an accident that you run over someone when I'm you're with, going uh, like, I, when you can only I'm go with, three miles per hour? I'm with I Karen. That's my first response. I'm with Karen. How was I, that an accident? I appreciate your father's take. I appreciate Two miles your brother's per hour take. And a bulldozer? I, I'm with Karen. That doesn't sound like an accident to me. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to trivialize it by referring people to the last scene in A Fish Called Wanda, but I, I, I'm going to refer them to that. But um, all I can tell you is that um, my brother's recollection of the news coverage at the time was that this driver was devastated and said he didn't know the guy well, was there or whatever. I don't know, but I, it doesn't. I'm going to. The most generous comparison for me as always, comes from Tom Clancy in The Hunt for Red October, when yeah. Jeffrey Pelt says, it would be well for your government to consider that having your ships and ours, your aircraft and ours, in such proximity is inherently dangerous. And, and Yuri, is, you yeah, lost another submarine? That's a whole, that's like half a movie later. Uh, but the... That that that's the most the most generous interpretation of the Jeffrey Pelt one. 
that it's inherently dangerous to have people yeah. in close proximity. I, I, I'm with Karen's take. I, I don't see how that's an accident. Uh, yeah. I, I was I, I myself was four years old at the time, so I'm just telling you what I've been told. But what what is true is that, well, you guys may disagree. What what the way I was told the story is nobody intended for anyone to get killed, and someone did because they were, you know, in proximity. Yeah, I think at this point, uh, at nudging the hour and ten mark, Karen and I form an alliance of disagree yeah, with you. <laughs> Fair, well, okay. Do. But speaking of people that speak out of those types of situations, the only adult on campus, Professor Frank, right. who in our film, he's combined with another professor and he turns into a sociology professor, but evidently he was a geology professor. He He's the one who encouraged the students' voices. He helped them have meetings, even though they weren't supposed to have any student meetings. And he was the one that morning who put his neck out after the guard had already shot and were reloading. Oh. Right. He was the one who ran into the situation, potentially saving hundreds of lives and begging the students to go home. Hey, that's that the thing I wanted to, to just that's the other thing I wanted to say to you. There's an episode of uh Law and Order. I know that uh, they were before they were making it on the West Coast. This was uh, on uh, the other side of your country. And I'm aware that America is a big country and these things are not directly comparable. Uh, but, uh, of course, these protests were going on on the East Coast at the same time that they were happening in the Midwest and the, and the West Coast. And there's an episode of Law and Order called Ramparts, which has stayed with me for a long time, uh, because uh, in that episode, the uh, detectives concerned uh, pull up... Um, a bus, a literal bus that was being driven by um, one of the protesters uh, who uh, was shot dead by, as it turns out, a security guard on campus. It's obviously meant to be a a, a, a parallel with uh, Kent State and um, and what happened there and, and individuals who were inequipped to make the decisions the way that were thrust upon them. And... Um, it stayed with me for so long as a lawyer, albeit non-practicing, um, because uh, the individuals concerned in that example, uh, many of them were effectively spies for um, the state who were put into their um, movements concerned, whether they be left-wing movements, <clears throat> resistance movements, uh, communist movements, uh, and wound up um, being drawn into um, the lifestyles of those um, who they couldn't understand. And mm -hmm. um, I like the fact that these mainstream programs, I mean, law and order is as mainstream as it gets. Yeah. Right. I like the fact that these mainstream programs still concern themselves with these extreme edges of civil liberties uh, questions, not least should the state intrude itself upon um, movements to the extent that people go undercover and um, uh, and form new personalities. It, the reason I well, mentioned... Sorry, go ahead, Karen. I was going to say, well, speaking of that, um, there are plenty of theories and perhaps even substantiated of um, undercover spies that were infiltrating the student movement and reporting back to uh, local enforcement authorities, maybe even the governor, there was one young man who was in the protest and he had a gun 
and his name was Terry Norman. And, um, you know, I remember growing up in the day where they were narcs in right. high school. Right. And so um, I'm, I do think that there were uh, kids who were planted into these groups to, you know, the SDS had just been driven off of campus. Yes. Um, that was a, a more radical version of this committee that was trying to stop the war in Vietnam. Right. Uh, Many of students in the middle of Ohio trying to stop the war in Vietnam. So I do think that there were some undercover uh, possible agents or um, students that were, you know, reporting back. I don't think that they had any specific involvement in that morning's, you know, tragedy. I think the 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 National Guard side say that there was a bullet fired and they were responding to a bullet, but that's right. nobody's been able to substantiate that in any of the tapes or any of the recordings. So, Karen, there's a reason that uh, you say, you know, in central Ohio, of course, on the other hand, there's a reason that the chant was the whole world's watching. And it didn't matter where these things began, because indeed, as it turned out, the whole world um, was watching. I don't know why I've, this this, this uh, Law and Order episode is so stuck in my head, but this Ramparts episode, I suppose, was was uh, stuck in my head not least because the outrage of the prosecutors in the end that the state would go so far to insert individuals to be provocateurs to start riots so that then the state could suppress those riots. And that, for me, goes wholly against any idea of, of, of what, to coin a phrase, law and order should be about. <laughs> Ironic, right? So uh, last-ish question, and I can't help but ask it. You've done documentaries. You've done fictional films. What you're endeavoring to do now, I, it sounds like to me, is somewhere in the middle of that. So here's the question. How do you see the responsibility of people like you, filmmakers like you, um, to stick to historical facts, even writing when fictional characters into those situations, and also to insert your own point of view? So obviously, I'm thinking of Oliver Stone in movies like JFK, where you go to the film and it's, you are very much meant to believe that this is a recreation of what would happen. And then Oliver Stone gets criticized and Oliver says, ah, I'm just a filmmaker. I don't. You know, I don't tell the truth. I just tell stories. How, where do you see your responsibility there in terms of writing an early draft of history? I think that artists have a responsibility to bring conversation, ideas to the table that perhaps wouldn't have a chance to be on that table. I think that as a filmmaker, I have an opportunity to tell a story that has never been told in this type of format. And I am doing so with knowing, knowing that I want to honor the people who were there that day and involved that day. And I don't need to make much up in order to tell what right. happened. Right. It was tragic and it was tragedy. Now to tell a feature film and have people sit there for two hours in a theater and thankfully we already have theatrical distribution. Oh, That's congratulations. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, Cheers. Uh, so 
they they do need to follow someone's point of view. Of course, we are used to storytelling that way. We're used to um, becoming emotionally involved in a handful of people's lives and their outcomes. And so I, you know, I had to insert someone that was going to live and was going to witness this and then deal with history 30, you know, 40 years later, we're, we're, we have it set slightly differently. It's not just right now. Of course, um, yeah. I needed, because of my point of view of history being something that we care, carry with us and that continues to impact us. And I think largely is why we repeat history is because it is in us. It is in our memory. It is in our DNA. And um, so it's right there. And we subconsciously continue to repeat these patterns as well, humanity. Sorry, you've been, a, you've been a great guest and I know Brian's going to wrap it up, but before we lose you, um, what sites should people look up the film? Where should people go next to learn a little more about the project? Cause it sounds amazing. And I yeah. want to make sure that our listeners uh, who've been um, listening to this conversation today can go to the next stage and see what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you so much for that invitation. We, the information we have right now is on IMDb. Um, we have not launched a website yet. Um, we are just going into production. And as you know, it takes probably about nine months to 12 months to come out in theater. So at that time, we will be, um, have more of a presence. We do have a Facebook page if somebody wants to come uh, and sign up there and be a part of any news and um, information that starts to get released. We'll be sharing photos and stills from set. And what's the uh, name on the Facebook page? It is it is called Kent State, the movie, I believe. So I I need to confirm that. So with we'll, you. we'll 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 put the actual URLs in the show notes so yeah, people yeah, yeah. can so people can get it. There's a couple yeah couple things that I'll, I'll confirm with you and send over. So. so I I need to extract a commitment from you, and then I'm going to ask you one last question. And the commitment is this: Will you come back on when the movie's released and talk about it? I would love to. I would love to. All now right, that I'm back, I understand what types of questions. Fantastic. I love. I love your. Uh, I love your view of history, and that you're sharing, you know, a true philosophical point of view that that really I think is is important to look at all of our laws and all of our traditions and see how it is that we treat each other and how do we want to treat each other. I think it's very important right now. And that's why I think this story is so timely. I was very concerned uh, that we weren't producing this movie pre-COVID and that, you know, I knew we were going to have to wait for a little while because we have so many extras. There's no way yeah. we could have everybody yeah. six feet apart. Um, and unfortunately, this is still more relevant than ever. Right. And continue to have questions of why we treat each other the way we do here in our own backyard. And, you know, that that said, that's a universal. It's everyone's backyard. Why are we doing these things to each other? What are the powers of domination? What are the powers of, of freedom? And I think that these are questions that we all should be thinking about as humans on this earth. Well, thank you for that. And given given oh, your your given your breadth of perspective and your expertise in this area, I have to ask one last question, uh, which is: sure. Don't you agree that the Hidden History Happy Hour with Alex and Brian should be on the big screen, or at least on the History Channel? Absolutely, you must be on the History Channel. Well, cheers and I, to you. <laughs> cheers I think to you, you for that obligatory answer. 
<laughs> yeah, you need to set it up in a bar, sort of like Actor Studio, but in a bar. Oh, we've right. done it. We've done we've live done episodes in, in bars and twice. New York. And yeah. maybe when the movie comes out, we'll do it in Cleveland. And while we're there, Alex, we can go to Fremont, my hometown, 90 miles yep. away, 70 miles away, and we can visit old Betsy, the cannon in our pilot episode. We have many yeah, we reasons to be news, in Ohio. We can talk about the newspaper article that he, he came up with. That yeah. has, yeah. So He's trying to find it. We'll we're, see. We're going to have you back. We're going to have you back when the movie comes out. We're going to have you back uh, when we do an in-person episode in Ohio. I Fair. think uh, those could either be one or two episodes, but I'm looking forward to it either way. And perhaps one of my actors should be featured on your show as well. Absolutely. Oh, we would love that. In course. character, not that I'm foreshadowing anything, fans, that might be coming. But yes, we should have an actor yeah. on in character. Thank you so much. Cheers. Can't wait Cheers. for the movie to come out. Thank right. you. Thanks, Good luck with the film. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.